Ron Barracks Action, a Rivenstone podcast where we discuss Broken Anvil Miniatures' exciting new war game. Barracks Action is hosted on the Line of Sight Network. You can find out more about the network and its various podcasts on LOSWarMachine.com. to another round of Barracks Action. Uh, I'll be your host today, Spencer, and with me are my co-hosts, Red. Hello, hello. And Reese. G'day. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, so hopefully y'all have listened to our last episode where we talked about some general strategies for the game. We are actually recording this directly afterwards, so we don't have too much in the way of uh, new community news because nothing got posted in the time that we recorded. But we still want to uh, throw out a couple of shout outs for some other content producers to make sure that you go check them out. So make sure you hit up the Rivenstone Report uh, podcast. It's the, um, they're doing a series on the factions and the models uh, right now, which is going to work really well in tandem with what we're doing right now because we're going over the scenarios. So that is uh, David and Alex over at the Rivenstone Report. Check them out as well as uh, Beardy. I don't I don't know what his name is, but over at Beardhammer um, yep. on YouTube, who's doing some lore sections, which is uh, pretty cool and exciting because the lore for this game is really really nice. And anybody else that I missed out on? No, I think that's it for right now. Uh, just Beardhammer and uh, Riven Report, besides us, of course. Yeah, because I was yeah. yeah, I mean, obviously, always, always love... a shout out to the uh, lovely people at Barracks Action, uh, because yeah. you know they, they they seem to be doing a really good job. Yeah, some of them are jerks, yeah. but well, uh, for the most part, they're all right. <laughs> they're 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 okay. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Apparently, I've I've already redeveloped my um my reputation. The Spencer <laughs> stigma. <laughs> we're gonna sneaky stigma oh so <laughs> here's something here's something that might be kind of fun if you beat spencer in a game uh we will give you a shout out on the podcast so yep. uh put him in the dirt uh as well, quickly as possible <laughs> <laughs> cool. well i guess we got to uh we got to give mazog a shout out because uh he did beat me in his demo game oh he did so, okay well, good so we've got our first yeah, bounty yeah. winner Mazdog, yeah. Good job, Maz- good job. Mazig, Mazig, okay. M-A-Z-O-G? I don't have no idea how it's pronounced. But, um, well, we're gonna give him a shout yeah. off. He looks like he's playing Challenger right now uh, on the Discord. So Mazog, go get him. Uh, beat Sneaky again. We need to bring that percentage down. <laughs> yeah. We've got a. Uh, he challenged me to to a rematch. So we'll see. We'll see how that goes on our next recording. Um, wait, wait a second. You're saying that he beat you and then he challenged you to a rematch like like he wasn't the person that lost and then was like, I want to try that again. He was like, I beat you. That felt really good. So, so. 
people people were people were posting in the discord about you know the spencer stigma and um he was like well you know i beat him in our in my demo (laughs) so if you want to play against spencer i'm like yeah man let's go (laughs) all right it is on Uh, Uh, yeah and then obviously always a big shout out to the broken anvil team for bringing us this awesome game and just being really really awesome people yeah i'm having having so much fun with this game like you guys have brought us so much joy or you all have brought us so much joy i am very very happy yeah yeah and just being able to interact with them and every every time they pop up it's it's always it's always great in the discord and whatnot um cool i think yeah i think that's it for for shout outs so we're going to jump into our topic for today so we're going to be doing a series on the various scenarios because mr hungerford was such a gem that he drops all of these scenarios for us in the bear nope Broken Anvil Discord the other day. There's too many BAs, man. Bam, bam, bat, bash, bard. There's some worse. Too many BAs. And we didn't even do this on purpose. We came up with Barracks Action not even considering that it's also a BA. Um, Yeah. So, anyways, tangent over. Uh, We're going to be going over Motherload today, uh, which is the basically the demo scenario scenario that they use for their demos it's you know one of the simplest and most basic as well as the very first one in the packet so that works out well for us yeah. um I, I guess i'm just going to run through the scenario okay so, i really <laughs> i scenario? i really want to read the fluff though because we uh we yeah, don't have we don't have enough fluff. fluff oh okay you can read the fluff. Oh, you can read the fluff. No, no. I, I thought you meant you wanted to make sure that the fluff was read. Oh, no, no. I actually want to do the reading of it and everything like that. It it, so it we're going to be like, all right, cool. When a major eruption of Rivenstone appears, war bands are immediately organized to claim it. These clusters of the powerful material are rarely claimed without a violent conflict. I love reading fluff. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. <laughs> it's it's a horrible it's horrible but still <laughs> yeah it's, it's, it's definitely fun <laughs> I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that yeah so basically the uh the concept for this scenario like fluff wise seems to be uh there's a big ribbon sand eruption and your warband was like hey there's a bunch of rivenstone let me go get some and then another warband was like Hey, there's a bunch of urban stone. Let me go get some. And um, now y'all are fighting. And that's kind of just what happens. So, uh, second little fluff piece. This scenario represents a common conflict in the Shattered Realms. A fight over a major eruption of Rivenstone. Hey, look what I just said. Um <laughs> Oh, they even add in some little some little text for you. This is an excellent scenario for your first games of Rivenstone. It pairs especially well with the Tale of Storms event deck, which is ideally suited for new players. Look at that. Beautiful. Cool. Maybe I should actually read stuff before talking about it. <laughs> Reading? Um, it's highly overrated. <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing is I read so much, but like important things? Nah. Right. Nah. <laughs> If it doesn't transport me to a fantasy world, then, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, 
Cool. So the setup for this one, so I'm not going to get into all the measurements and stuff because that's it, you can't picture it, right? So basically, you have each player has two ribbon stone deposits that are close to their deployment zone or their side of the table, I should specify, because later on in the scenarios, deployment zones get a little wonky um, in different scenarios. But close to your side of the table. And so there's four ribbon stones deposits total. And then there's three objectives that are running across the center of the board. So one's very center, like center, center. And then two are off to the side, uh, about six inches away from the table edge, but straight across the center. So you're going to set that up. Then on this particular scenario, your barracks have to go in a specific position. Uh, you do not get to place them um, yourself. This is where they have to go, and that is two inches up from the table edge and completely centered, so 18 inches. So your barracks is going to be centered in the middle of the board in line with one of the objectives and your opponent's other barracks, and you've got two deposits nearby, two deposits on your opponent's side of the board with those objectives running across the center. I'm just going to keep saying this, and hopefully it can create a picture for somebody. Um, once you set all of that up, the gameplay-wise, it's a very, very simple scenario. All it is is that the objectives, you score them by standing near them, so within two inches, or close, if we're using the game terminology, as we should be. Um... And whoever has more models standing around that objective within close at the end of the flux phase, or I guess it's like the beginning of the flux phase. I don't know what part of the flux phase they score. I should go reread that article. But during the flux phase, whoever has more models around that uh, objective scores two victory points. And remember, the flux phase happens at the end of the round. Right. So once the clash phase is over... And you have filled up all of your flux on your event card. Then we move into the flux phase and we score. Um, yeah, victory conditions are pretty basic. Uh, whoever has more victory points wins. And if both players have the same number of points, the one with the most shards in their reservoir is the winner. If that result is also the same, the game is a tie. Uh, I had my first tie game the other day uh, on TTS, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, it was really, really cool. <laughs> this was crazy, like, play that could have won, could have tied. could. Uh, it, was, it was awesome. I love tie games. It means things were, like, super close, and it was a great game. Nice. Uh, yeah, but that's basically the breakdown of the scenario itself. So the last thing is deployment, which is what I forgot to go over. Uh, you will deploy... Your model's medium, which is six inches, from the your board edge when you do mm -hmm. your deployment. And you use standard standard uh, deployment of one hero, one muster per player. Right. Uh, alternating. So, that being said, now that we have a generalized picture of what the scenario looks like, and... Uh, Hopefully y'all can pull up a picture of it or something uh, while you're listening to this so you can actually uh, look at it because that would always be super helpful. Um, tell us... Hold up. 
That's okay. Phone's being stupid. All right, cool. So what are who wants to start us off? Red, Reese, uh, what are some yeah. general strategies like your your deployment? Uh we'll, we'll start with deployment yeah. for motherload. So deployment, um, so I kind of break a game down, or at least I usually break a game down into three parts. Uh, and two of these parts are going to be repeated over and over again. So the very first part is going to be deployment. The second part is going to be early round, where you're doing positioning in a single round. Uh, and then end round, which is where you are guaranteeing your scoring points. And then, of course, for round two, you have an early round, uh, end round. And round three, you would have an early round, end round. Or at least that's the way I like to break things down. Uh, um, you are deploying in this one medium up the board. So that's six inches. Then you have your base size uh, at that point, which is going to be slightly over uh, an inch, uh, if I remember correctly, even at the smallest. Uh, so that puts you extreme. That puts you really close to those ribbon stone deposits. So in my deployment, because I want to gain early shard advantage, or at least make sure I'm not getting behind the curve on shard advantage, I'm going to deploy my uh, shard gatherers, i.e. the people that have ingenuity to uh, directly off of those shards, because uh, I want to be able to either already be on the shard if my base is large enough, or I want to uh, be close enough to the shard to where I can move and then at that point immediately interact. Uh, with the shards. Uh, so that's kind of like the first thing that I do when I set up deployment. Then at that point, I want to decide what my strategy is going to be uh, for this, uh, which usually I'll have before the game, but my strategy will determine my next deployments uh, based on who I'm facing and stuff like that. Uh, whatever model uh, I am going to probably be using for a centralized threat, I'm going to deploy centralized, uh, hence him being a centralized threat. Uh, and I want to try to take advantage to where I can put him close, closer to the center of the board to where I have the most options for attack with him. Uh, but also at the same time, definitively threatening the far side of one of my side objectives. Um, if I am allowed to deploy after my opponent, I'm going to watch where he is placing his models because I want to know where he's going to go. And sometimes I'll save my centralized threat for the end uh, if I don't want to play my hand too early. But if I'm deploying him dead center, it doesn't just uh, it doesn't give away my hand at all. Uh, my second hero, hero will then at that point uh, be more determined on what he is playing. So I tend to do second uh, se uh, centralized threat next. And I definitely don't want my, my non-resource gathering uh, followers uh, to be put on that. So resource gathering follower followed up by my centralized threat. That's going to be my first, uh, first deploys. Um, what would you do for your first deploys, Reese? So I'm very similar. Um, using the uh, whoever you want to use as your gatherers and placing them right near you, because your muscles of three for the most part. Placing two on one side and one on the other is usually the way I go. Um, from there, it depends on the faction I'm playing. I've spent a lot of time with Risen, and I will then usually place um, my Knight of Exile order. And I'll usually place him sort of off-center. I'll pick a side. Um, usually it's the side I've only placed one gatherer follower on um, because that way I've got a little bit more room to place 
some foot soldiers for him to, you know, babysit for his um, Champion of Death secondary. So that's usually my game plan is like, I'll place my veteran hero first, um, usually slightly off center, picking whichever side I feel like might make more sense. And obviously that's going to be terrain dependent as well. Um, right. Yeah, so gatherers first, followed by veteran hero, um, slightly off center. Um, because that leaves the center still available for my champion, because I usually run Corum. Um, and in other games like uh, Iron Guard, for example, either a Dredge Boss or Dredge Boss or Hobart can uh, actually fill that placing uh, off center, because you'll usually want them close to Rivenstone for Iron Guard for their secondaries. So it does sort of come down to the secondaries on a hero, but for my personal experience with a lot of Risen gameplay, I usually deploy you know, a muster of foot soldiers or archers as my gatherers, um, two on one side, one on the other, and then my Knight of Exile on the side, which has the, the one gatherer, because I can then fill that side out with some more dudes. Right. Yeah, I'll, I'll usually do the, the same thing, basically, that Red was talking about. I'll start off with whatever my uh, harvesting units are going to be, uh, two on one side, one on the other, and then my centralized threat in the very middle of the board so they can go and deal with, you know, whatever's going on, as well as typically um, that'll force one of my opponent, my opponent to place whatever their centralized threat is off center if I'm going first and they're going second because yeah. um, they don't, they don't want to be directly across from a, a tour, which is usually what I run if I'm not playing a, a different faction. Uh, and then when it comes to my second hero, I'll then almost always place them uh, like off to the side, but centered to the side, if that makes sense, in between two objectives so that they can either go to the central objective or whatever side objective they're closest to. Uh, and it gives them a little bit more uh, freedom in order to impact the board in two different places. Right. And that also gives my uh, centralized model the option to run off to the other side of the board and go deal with stuff there while the secondary hero deals with the center. Um, and then the rest of my followers just fall into line just depending on what they are and where they're going. And we'll talk about that more right. once we get to uh, faction-specific stuff or coalition-specific stuff. Right. What would you think is the, the biggest... Because uh, in my mind, the, the well, I have my in my mind what the biggest mistake in deployment would be on this specific mission. What would you think yours yours would be? Like watching somebody and just kind of looking at them and going, "Oh, that's that's a mistake." Um. Well, the I'd say from because I've seen this is not putting your harvesting models ready to harvest. Yeah, like that would be a huge one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah this... that was my pick as well. It's like watching people who are very new to the game not place followers so they're as close as physically possible to those deposits. Mm -hmm. Because I'm pretty sure even with the 32 mil base, you can be within an inch or tight of the deposit on yeah. deployment. So yeah, yeah, you can. It's like you, you can literally just deploy them there and then you can harvest, harvest for their two actions when you activate them. But seeing people not do that and then have to move and harvest or place them so far off they need to move, run, and then wait until next turn, um, that's that's probably the biggest mistake I would say. 
Yeah, in mother load, it literally is the mother load. Like this is the one where we're going to get the most shards. So, I would I would absolutely agree that the number one mistake would be not placing your harvesters in a position to harvest on that very first turn. My yeah. second mistake would be uh, uh, revealing your hand too early and telling your opponent which side of the board you're going to concentrate on. Uh, and then my third mistake would be trying to concentrate on all sides of the board at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, I find that especially, and this again is coming back to my sort of gameplay with um, Risen and Iron Guard for the most part, you tend to focus on, a, on the central objective and pick a side. Um, and then and then you've probably just got like one model that you're throwing at the far side to contest and be a nuisance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And on the non-active side, like the, the side that you're not putting, like if I'm going for the left side and the center, and those are like my two objectives out of the three uh, on the right side, I'm going to have a couple of followers that I can position to where in round, I can just throw them out there to try to do some contesting. Exactly. Yeah. Yep, for sure. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, so we talked a little bit about deployment and things of that. Did you have anything? Um, and we want to talk about like our early rounds, like what the the gameplay is. Yeah. Uh, so early round before we're going to scoring, uh, just like I was once saying, like I'm gonna have a couple of guys on the side that I'm not heavy towards in position for end round to try to contest or clear the offside. And I'm going to have my heavier side of my forces in between uh, the two objectives that I want to hang with the heavier being towards the center, uh, because I want to be able to make sure that that center is controlled. Uh, and early round is positioning. Uh, I'm not going out, or at least for me, uh, simply because I don't want to give you, I don't want to give you five rounds of attacking the person that's going to hold the center objective. I want to give you two rounds or one round. Uh, and I want to make sure that I've already got enough advantage to where you are not going to be able to take him off that objective easily. So in this, I'm wanting to position using terrain, whatever that terrain may be, to grab two objectives and while I was deploying, I was already thinking of the terrain and how I was going to develop my uh, early game. Uh, and then once I get into early round, I'm now thinking of how I'm gonna end round. So I'm like thinking one stage ahead, which could be like two or three rounds uh, or two or three turns. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, or at least that's what I do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What about you, Reese? Um, yeah, I, I, it's very similar. So like, um, and again, a lot of my opinion is going to come back to my time playing Risen. And it's like uh, early game is usually leaving at least a follower from a muster on the far side of the board that I'm not focusing on. Um, with Risen Foot Soldiers, it's amazing because they can move, run, shamble and just be in like the most annoying spot in existence. Um, so being able to do that with say one or two dudes to just stop you from scoring an objective is really good. Um, while the rest of the force focuses on the center and the opposite side. So if you're, you know, uh, 
if I'm chasing the right hand side and I've just got everything over there, so Corum and a Knight of Exiled Order plus a muster and a half worth of Risen Foot Soldiers, then on the other side of the board I've just got two Risen Foot Soldiers who run up and stop you from scoring two points. Um, it's uh, definitely worth the trade-off in my mind. Right. Yeah, I think I think for me the the general game plan for like the early round, the first first couple turns is uh, first thing I always do is mine charts yep. with those right. colors that I put in position. So that's step one. Yeah. And then that should have been all of our <laughs> step ones. <laughs> like that should have been. <laughs> yeah. I, I completely <laughs> forgot about that because we were like, oh, let's set up to get shards, and then you were like, what are your early games? Ah, eh, forget shards. We're just going to set up here. <laughs> oh yeah, we should all get shards. <laughs> like like. <laughs> yeah and and then from there uh when i when i activate one of my heroes it's going to be i'm going to position them in such a way that they're safe but can get to an objective and make an impact if they need to yeah safe um, and relevant yeah mm-hmm. safe and relevant so it depends on like you know, like you talk about different coalitions and, and whatnot about what the play is there for, for orcs. It, it's kind of an interesting thing because if I'm running like the starter box, like tour Battlemaster, then it, it becomes a hard decision of, do I want to move tour off the center and put him in a position that is more over to the side to deal with my weak objective? Or do I want to move the Battlemaster up so that then he threatens the two objectives, not only with just getting there, but also if my opponent uh, puts things too close, then I could potentially get my quest as well. And so that's where like balancing the scenario aspects as well as your quests um, becomes important. Right. But yeah, but it's always going to be, I'm going to take one of my heroes and put them in a position that is safe yet relevant so that if I need to activate them again, they can go do things that are important. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Nice. And it's, 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 and this is a very, um, I, I, it's like, yeah, if you, I agree with that, that's exactly what a turn one is. It's like, especially mother load, right? So it's like, yeah, yeah, three followers, they double harvest or harvest once if they happen to fumble the roll. Um, and then you go with a hero. For me, it's usually my veteran hero. Um, get them in a position where they're going to be able to either score their, secondary straight away um or score their secondary the next time i activate them of a round right yeah and and sometimes like the decision's already made for you like if mm. you're playing iron guard you have a weldmonger like you know you're harvesting and activating the weldmonger like yep. you yeah. know you know that's what's happening right um, victory points stop a turn yeah but the tough decisions come in once you get into your second turn because at that point if you're going first then you're at minimum uh, going to be looking at preflux, and this yep. is where things get get wonky. Because if one of the first two, if in one of the first two turns someone rolls a blank or a double, it's going to totally change how you approach things. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it like that's one of the best part about the the shard die system is that like literally your second turn, like your plan can already be out of whack. Right. <laughs> and you have to adjust. And I, I love that aspect of it. Um, but generally, once again, at that point, you're kind of just moving some stuff forward. So you're going to activate your other hero. 
put them in a position that is safe and relevant as well as get some followers moved up into a position to where they can be relevant and probably not necessarily safe. Like on my second turn, that's generally when I'm getting, I'm running up a couple of follower groups to go contest some objectives. And hopefully the map is designed in such a way to where I can place them to have like some cover or some whatever, at least one or two of them. So that makes it a little bit more difficult for my opponents to deal with. Um, So that then they can, they can start reacting um, and, and dealing with that. But I think on your second turn, you need to start getting stuff into a position to where they can start being scenario relevant. And when we're talking, when we're talking early round, end round, we're talking up to four turns is approximately early round. So when Spencer is saying second turn, you got to think about that. I've had two turns. My opponent has two turns. That's four turns. We are starting to transition into end round right now. So on your second turn, it is very important that you are transitioning into end round. So when we're talking about looking in when you're in early round, looking into late round, you're really only thinking one or two turns ahead uh, because you're already making those plans right off the bat because all games of Rivenstone, whether you whether you think about it or not, they move fast like these rounds can go fast. Uh, so you have to be on the ball and then you can have to easily adjust because in your opponent may have ro- rolled a blank and now suddenly end round isn't going to start for another turn possibly. And so that can sometimes adjust your play, but you should be prepared to go to end round by your second turn. Yeah. Cause it's like, even if things have progressed normally and on you, the beginning of your second turn, you're going first, being your second turn, it's only two flux. There's still a chance that this is your last turn of that round. Because if you roll a double and your opponent rolls a double, round's over. Yep. Um, yeah, so you always have to be like thinking about that as once, once you're past your first turn of the round, it could be your last one. So you need to have things positioned in a way of, if this is my last turn this round, what can I at least do to score some victory points? Right. Um, yeah. And that's, that's like the important part. Yeah. And mother loads, mother loads nice for that because basically every follower group can move, run to an objective. If it's deployed sort mm-hmm. of parallel mm-hmm. to it. Yep. So there you, yeah. you're not going to be completely out of the game. If you're just like, ah, oh, I mean, obviously you'll still need to use the activation to do it. But yeah, like I agree with exactly what Spencer said. It's like as of your turn two, you need to start either A, getting into position or B, be in position on objectives. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. And then turn three, that's 100% in round procedures. Yep. Like if you're at turn three, unless someone rolls a blank, that that's your last turn. So yep. you, you need to be making your plays for the objectives and the victory points. So your quests and bounties and objectives. So uh, Reese, what's your thought process going into turn three? Turn three, um, everything's on an objective that can and physically wants to be on an objective. Um, And then the rest of the turn is getting either dealing with an enemy uh, hero that's low or focusing everything on a hero that's worth a lot of bounty. Um, because if you can, I mean, 
if it's the end of the round, then they'll be able to spawn it back. But if it's infused, it means it resets the infusion. It also means that you can get, you know, three, four or more victory points up at the end of a round, not including your objective play. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and then the rest of the turn is just um, if you if you physically can't achieve that or it's not like likely, it's just get it get and contest or claim as many objectives as possible disrupt your opponent's chances of doing so and score whatever secondary you can mm -hmm. what about you red so for me uh turn three uh um Typically, like I said, I usually break it early round, end round. Uh, turn three may start my end round. Uh, I think it pretty much always it does. I haven't seen a situation where I've rolled double blanks and suddenly my end round's a little bit further. But as I transition into end round, it really deter it, it. It somewhat depends on which round we are on because end round, right. end round one is going to look different than in round two and three and the same thing with early round two is going to look different than early round you know one so in round one i want to i i do want to make my push for objectives but i'm not pushing the 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 battle lines uh too far forward uh especially if i end up going uh where my opponent is going to have an extra turn on me uh, even though I may roll doubles, I may roll a blank. So I don't want to push too far forward to where I overextend myself. So that early round two, uh, my opponent can easily wipe out a large amount of my voice and destroy my positioning. Uh, so at this point, when I go to grab objectives, I'm grabbing to far backsides uh, if I can. Mm -hmm or on the side that I may have a hero in, and especially on the side that I'm trying to contest. Far backside, try to stay out of that threat range, but stay on that objective. Uh, uh, if I can't stay out of his threat range, then I'm gonna try to push forward on that side. So this is where it will change. And the only reason I push forward on that side is I don't want him to be able to get pushes and push me off the objective. He's gonna have to kill me uh, to get me off that objective. That's just the way it is. And also if I can end his movement early, uh, he might not be able to get on the objective in the first place. So if I can block his objective off, if he's given me that opportunity, uh, uh, I'm definitively going to take it, uh, even though I know I'm sacrificing that flank. But on my main flank, yeah. I'm going to stay back a little bit because I don't want to lose positioning on my main flank. Uh, I just don't want to lose it, uh, especially yeah. going into round two. Okay. Uh, so, so for me, I think there's particularly on mother load uh there's one thing to consider is this turn like turn three is super lethal mm -hmm. <laughs> because you generally you haven't um engaged a whole lot <clears throat> at this point and you've had two turns to catch shards as well as that massive amount of mining you were able to get at the very beginning of the game which there's not very many other scenarios where you can mine as much as you can on motherload at the beginning right. so you have a ton of shards so it's super easy for a hero to double move up and just start burning shards killing stuff so that's definitely something 
to pay attention to is do you need to be the aggressor and going over there and killing stuff to ruin your opponent's plan? Or do I need to make sure that I'm positioning my stuff in a way that uh, I'm not about to get murdered? And so that's super important because you have so many shards at this point of the game, something's going to die. Um, this is the way it is. And then the other thing is you really need to be paying attention to your exhaustion economy. Because if I can go into the lull phase with activation tokens on everything and get a full clear, then that's going to be a huge part of my strategy and something I want to accomplish. Um, but sometimes there's other plays that are more important to that. So you need to factor that in as well as what, what is your exhaustion going to look like going into the lull phase and thus the beginning of the next round because that's you know like we talked about previously with our advantage is the more options that i have then the better i'm in better situation i'm in and so i want to have as many options as i can in order to make those plays early in the beginning of round two mm -hmm. yeah that's, then, that's an important point you make is um hitting that third turn is hitting your exhaustion cap on everything so that or at least what sorry one exhaustion on everything because full clear is super useful when you go into a new round compared to a partial clear partial clear might cut it sometimes depending on how you've activated throughout the round and all that sort of stuff but yeah getting a full clear is like what you want if you can physically achieve it right and another thing uh leaning into this is going to be the killing round it, it very much so is don't think uh, you have to weigh the killingness because you've got so many shards you don't want to end up going into round two at a shard disadvantage so if you are going in for the kills make sure that the kills that you are making are going to put you in an advantage uh because your opponent could bait you with some small things so that you spend a bunch of shards to kill like a veteran for one point but you spend a ton of your shards and then he just contests that you gain nothing but the one point of that victory and now he is at severe shard advantage going into round two uh which he uses to smash your early uh early positioning in round two so be cognizant of accidentally overextending yourself and falling into that trap yeah and and going into round two or turn one of round two of mother load is is really interesting because you've got those urban deposits super close so depending on how much stuff has died and you know what your movement speeds are and things of that nature i'm I'm spoiled with perks and I can just, if flingers die, then cool, whatever. They come back and outright up and then they can mine twice again. Yeah. Um, same thing with iron guard with their, with their coalition bonus mm -hmm. um, is, you know, when, when your opponent gets their first turn of round two, they're going to be able to mine a bunch. And then that round is suddenly becomes super killy too, or that turn. So you've got two, super killy turns uh potentially super killy turns back to back yep and so you have to be able to um manage and manipulate like what what those two turns are going to look like and you know what's going to die and what's not especially since like the big threat is having you know your centralized threat 
die top of round one because oh. then you have to take a barracks action to get them back because you just passed that low phase revival. Mm-hmm. And so that's another thing is like, can, you know, like red was just talking about like moving something in at the end of round one. Like if you're going first, you have a little bit of an advantage there because you can move it in, go have it go kill something. And then if it dies, well, you get it back when that low phase happens. Yep. But second player, now you're in a position to where um, whatever you put in, that that has the potential of dying at top of turn one, of uh, top of <laughs> top of round two. So then it might be denied to you for the whole round unless you bear its action, which is a big right. swing. Yep. Um, so these these are the kind of things like you have to be thinking about with these two back to back super killy turns. Yeah, and one of the things you're going to see, the reason that we decided to do each scenario individually on an episode is these strategies will change every single scenario we play, uh, uh, where we're fighting, how we deploy, stuff like that. And having 10 scenarios right off the bat means that there is a lot of playability in this game, uh, which we're rarely excited at. Yeah. yeah, and that's not and... taking into account the four event decks we'll have wave one as well. Yeah, change everything. Like um, Tale of Storms alone, you can get Crackling Anticipation, which is every every turn gain an extra shard for free. Or you've got um, Eye of the Storm, where everybody gets plus one ingenuity when harvesting. So suddenly your shard economy just skyrockets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like yeah, just just between. The event deck itself, like I've had the same scenarios feel totally different. Like, especially depending on what you're playing. Like when I'm playing Shusty Oryx and suddenly Squall drops, I'm just like, oh, why? <laughs> um, particularly if I'm playing against Shattered Empire, which is what I was going to talk about in the last episode and forgot, and now I remembered, <laughs> was sometimes you can turn your opponent's advantages in or advantages into your own advantage. So one of the things I was going to talk about is like, so say you're playing against Shattered Empire. And they've got a model by a Rivenson Posset, so it's auto-focused. Or you're attacking some followers that are in Quorum's Para, and their defense is already auto-focused. Well, then that lets me then position my shooting stuff in such a way that I don't have to worry about getting within the first range band. I can be at extreme range because they're already auto-focused, so that gives me more options as far as where I'm positioning things. Um, so even though they have a defensive advantage, they've just given me a positioning advantage. And so making sure that I'm able to take advantage of that, just said advantage way too many times, um, but <laughs> making sure that I'm able to take it. Anyways, I'm not going to say it again, but <laughs> yes. So that that's what I want to talk about the last cast. And it's, it's similar on here with um, what we were just talking about is uh, and i forgot what we we're talking about this because <laughs> i went on a tangent but uh yeah that yep <laughs> um cool so we're gonna move on so from after those first couple of turns the the game just gets really dynamic so it's really you're gonna be more uh looking at what you know, the board state itself is and what your game plan is, your strategies like we talked about in the uh, in our last episode. 
and making sure that you are progressing towards them because it's really hard to to talk about like where the game's going to be at at that state because things are crazy and it really just depends on what the board looks like unless yep. y'all have some some some, some secret sauce no. to drop on some people now the unfortunate part is is after you've unpacked and you've done that first round now at this point it's you have to stick to your theories centralized threat making sure you model advantage looking for those things focusing on objectives not uh positioning and those things uh once we get past round one and even towards the end of round one uh, once we get past round one it is up in the air like it is all over the place and you have to at that point apply theories appropriately at the given times uh i wish there was yeah. a good formula for it uh it's just like chess once you get into that mid game there's really not a book for it it's just a bunch of theory and whoever is the better player will take advantage and win and that's just the way it is yeah, yeah the um the, the big thing is like yeah basically when you hit round two it's very dependent on what's happened at the end of round one. Like yeah. if you're holding one side of the board, continue to hold it, push your opponent back. If you're scattered across the board, do what you can to consolidate your forces to hold, you know, middle objective or left objective or right objective, wherever you, you know, you think you can do with the strongest. Um, be aware that you have to have something to combat your opponent's secondaries or your opponent's um, heroes that might come and disrupt your plans have yeah. some models left to disrupt your opponent's um, plans. You know, if they're like, if they've got one follower or like, for example, Shattered Empire, they've got a Stone Touch Knight sitting on the objective that nobody's at. You need to send someone over there to just boop him off or you need to send someone over there to contest um, to, to stop him from scoring, um, which will obviously swing points a lot in your favor. Um, so yeah, it, it's very dependent on the factions that are being played, the models that are being played, um, the the state of the game with the event deck, the state of the game with how everything's played out as well. So there's a lot of factors that come in after round one. But like Red just said, once you've unpacked round one and unpacked your uh, idea of your of your force, you just have to keep pushing with it and and hope that that's enough and adapt as you need to to continue on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one of the big things is like at this point in the game, you're gonna have your stuff that you had positioned previously that's up the board and then you're going to have your things that spawned and so they're at the back of the board so those need to be repositioned so balancing what needs to be activated when of what needs to get into position to be relevant versus this stuff is up here on the board it's in position how can i take advantage of it or how can i mitigate it dying because it is now in a much more precarious spot um is is kind of where you have to balance like once you get in into that part of the game yeah fully agree fully agree yeah. yeah and i did remember the thing that i was talking about a second ago so now we're fully caught up so event decks <laughs> um <laughs> yeah like even playing the same scenarios with just this one event deck like they just change things up so much yep. like the example i was getting to previously was like sudden squall like oryx versus se if like i could take advantage of that positioning but then if sudden salt squall gets dropped then suddenly they now have an even higher defensive advantage at being extreme range so then i have to continue to making sure that things aren't extreme range versus like if i'm giving the one that gives me an extra shard every turn and i'm so excited because i'm just going to be extra killy um 
So it uh it all just depends. Yeah, most definitely. Um, so I think we yeah, I think we wanted to get into some coalition specific strategies here. And the first one we have listed is the Oryx Raiding Party. And I think since I've already been talking about them, I'll just keep doing so. <laughs> <laughs> you go for it, man. This is you. Oh, Harry trend. <laughs> yeah. Um, so for, for Oryx, it really, once again, depends on your list. So you've got so many different options that we'll talk about in future episodes. But uh, I'll talk about the starter box list and then my favorite list, which is the Shusty Oryx. So starter box list, you're looking at Tor, uh, a Battlemaster, two Brutes, and Flingers. And so for that one, you've got like a really interesting mix of Tor wants to go out and hunt heroes, while the Battlemaster is great at going out and dealing with followers. And so you want to make sure that you're positioning them both in such a way that they can do that and be effective so one of the the best things is if you if your battle master if your opponent doesn't match you on strong versus weak sides in other words when i place my battle master who's going to be the second hero i place after tour if they don't place a hero directly across from him so that you know our strong and weak sides are contested or the same then if I'm going after his weak side with my Battlemaster, that's going to put me in a really good position to be able to just kill followers and hold down that objective at the same time, which is really what I want to happen. Um, alternatively, the center objective always ends up super contested. So, because every, everybody is going for the center objective, and so that's another place where the Battlemaster can go to and make a really big uh, impact onto the board because there's always going to be followers for him to kill over there to get his quest, uh, as well as some potential heroes to, to smack. And he can smack heroes really good, too. <laughs> like, he's no slouch there. Um, whereas Tor, I just want running around the board and making sure that he's going after enemy heroes when he has the opportunity the shards to basically guarantee a kill. Yeah. Um, so my, my goal with that is hold up shards until I know that Tor is going to be able to kill something and then to go after their centralized threat, their biggest bounty um, so that I can score the most amount of points off of him. Right. And the, the goal with, so with Tor specifically, so he's a big bounty character. He's worth four. So you don't want to commit him uh, in such a way that he's just going to, to die because right? it's really hard to make up that point differential of four bounty. So you have to be skirmishing with him. So you want him in a position to where he can pop out, throw some bolas, and then run back. You almost always want to save your second action with Tor to run away. Mm. Um, because don't want him to die. <laughs> so that's something that you really need to consider when when you're running with uh, him or any other bounty for models in your list, um, is you have to protect them. So you have to find a way to make sure that they are relevant to the game, they're scoring you points, and they're getting you up at tempo by giving you model advantage, or, you know, in the case of Bellcroft, which we'll talk, someone else will talk about, like shard advantage or whatever the situation is. Mm -hmm. um, 
And yes, that's that's really my main thing is is just you you want to make sure that you're you're positioning those um, so that they can they can do what they want to do and be a threat. Uh, as far as like my followers go, I love the flingers, their ability to outrider um, straight into a mining position is so so good on this uh, on this scenario. So they just pop out, they run over, they start mining, they collect me stuff, and that's all my flingers do. That they just mine. That's that's their job on this scenario. Um, I almost never make any attacks with them. I don't care if they die. They're there to mine and to get me shards. The brutes are the scary models. So they're the ones that are going to be going out and trying to kill my opponent's followers and hold objectives. And so, since you're only you only get you're you're down a couple of models, right? So since you have two units of brutes and they're only muster twos, then you're down two models from your opponent effectively. So you have to make sure that they're getting that model advantage back by being able to kill your opponent's followers that are also around an objective, which they're really good at because if they get charges for free, then they have um. You know, a really good opportunity to be able to kill multiple models in one turn, especially if you get lucky and you get some cleave and stuff like that, because they're, they're good at killing followers. Or they can follow up on uh, a hero activation, and if you've got your hero within two inches of a uh, an enemy hero that you need to die, well then suddenly those things are coming in at strength four with damage two. And that's that's scary, especially if they can get in two attacks each, and you've got two brutes, it's four attacks. Like you're probably getting in that last little bit of damage that you need, if that's the case. Um, so making sure that they're positioned in a way that they're safe from heroes, because they're it's hard for followers to kill brutes because generally followers only deal one damage and brutes have defense three and two health, so they're pretty good at staying alive, but heroes will just wipe them off the board. Um, so positioning them is very important to, uh, what it is that, that you want to be doing. And then as far as the, the shooty Oryx. Well, I do, I do have um, some stuff on regular Oryx before we go to oh. shooting. Yeah. We, oh, we, sure, sure. Get we get play, them. we play Oryx too. <laughs> so yeah, I was uh, going to do my, my Oryx jump, but then I was going to let y'all talk. So, but this well, one's too. Yeah. So centralized threat is obviously tor uh obviously now there is an alternate strategy uh in this uh scenario that i think works very well in this specific scenario uh and this is kind of a risk play uh i don't think it is as safe as the tor centralized threat with flingers mining uh but sometimes i like to risk it for the biscuit uh, and so I will do the following. I will have my flingers who will who will definitively do to Outrider be on the shards. Uh, I will have three flingers up there. And then what I will do is I end up mining with both actions on all of the flingers. And I am hoping that two of them will die on their second mining action. I want two flingers dead by the end of this activation of flingers because at that point what i'm going to do is i am going to on the side 
that I am making my push for. And I watch the opponent's deployment very carefully before I deploy mine, because I want to see where he is potentially going to throw models up the board to contest rather than, you know, make that his stand. So if I can get that information as soon as possible, it's better. On the side that he is planning on just flinging up and contesting, or he has his most miners, because like we said, you're going to have two miners on one and one miner on another. Uh, I am going to watch for that side of the board. And then what I'm going to do after two flingers die is I'm going to activate my barracks. I'm going to spin two of the shards out of the six that I got. And I'm going to, at that point, ambush on the opposite table side those two flingers back onto the board and attempt to kill two of his miners. Uh, yeah. This way he is losing four mining activations possibly uh, out of his possible six and puts me at a four to two possible advantage on shards right off the bat and also immediately puts two flingers on his backside, uh, which he either can deal with immediately, which is going to mess with his activations, uh, or he is going to try to continue to push forward and ignore them, at which point they are available uh, because they just came out. They don't have any exhaustion on them. They get that free attack from ambush. Uh, they are available to continue to harass that that back mine or that back ribbon stone uh, because I want to have three ribbon stone deposits to your one ribbon stone deposit, if at all possible. Uh, so it's kind of an alternate weird uh, thing that I thought of the other day. Uh, and so I just wanted to make sure that you are aware of that. And if you're playing against orcs, especially playing against me, be very, very aware that I might take advantage and try to do this. <laughs> and now for shooty orcs. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you, put, you brought that up because I've, I've tried pulling that off in like this one game. I was like, this is what I was going to do. And that was my plan. And then my, my flingers just refused to die. <laughs> Well, luckily, I'm not. To, I guess we'll go back to normal stuff. Yeah. Luckily, I'm not good at the Norm dice. Normally, they all die. Yeah. Normally, <laughs> they all die. And I'm like, cool, they all die. So, this is what I'm going to do. It's going to be fun. And then this particular yeah. game, they were just like, nah, no, nah, we're, yeah. we're going to force you. And, and be careful trying to pull this into Shattered Empire because Shattered Empire has body block. Uh, and so, if you do this wrong, you'll kill the wrong things. Uh, so, just be cognizant oh, there is some uh, counterplay yeah. there. Oh well, body block. Body blocks only only heroes, only isn't it? Melee. And it's only it, melee. It's, as well. it's only melee. So then, never mind. Yeah. Fling a fling, 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 fling away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, and then for for Shusty orgs, it's it's very much the the same strategy, but the only difference is I'm I'm instead of running two brutes, uh, I'm running two flingers. Instead of the one flingers, I'm running a Carnotarix, aka Murderbirds. And the the goal there and the headhunter instead of the brute. And so the goal there is literally just I'm killing heroes. That's all I'm doing. Is <laughs> killing heroes. And uh the burner birds are awesome because they're so fast and they they buff Tor and particularly the headhunter so much that like they become almost the linchpin of of your list and so making sure that you're activating them at the right time to put them in the right position is really important because not only do you want them to be used to you know enable your heroes make them be able to kill things easier or more yep. consistently 
but they're also great because they're so fast to just run up and contest things <laughs> because they can easily do that um, from the barracks. They can get to whatever scenario point on the board um, that they need to be. And so making sure that you're using those uh, effectively is important. And in this list, since I've got so many flingers, like it's awesome because we're just outridering everywhere. And um, it, it gives them a lot more options. And in this case, then I'm usually going to be doing a lot more aggressive actions with the flingers because I've got more of them. Um, the other option for this list, and it works really well in this scenario in particular because there's not a lot of interaction required, is double murder burned uh, flingers. And then it's just like heaven. You can be wherever you want to be on the board. All your stuff is super fast. You've got like you're rerolling misfires on anything that anything that you're trying to attack with your heroes. Um, and it's great. So if you want to buy two packets of murder birds on that list on this scenario, please do. It's a ton of fun. It's absolutely great. Um, yep. That's all I've got for the orcs, unless um. You know, Reese, we know how much you love them. So what, what do you I've, I've only played a couple of games with Oryx, and they, they haven't been a good time for me, so I don't really have any comments um, uh, <laughs> outside of, like, the generalized tactics of mother, mother Load itself on, you know, deployment and how to play, so... <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I guess we'll throw a Shattered Empire over to you, Red. Um, okay. Start us off. What are your thoughts for Shadow Empire? So once again, we're looking at our miners and we're looking at our centralized threat. The the general strategies of playing uh, into this mission. Uh, and though Shattered Empire has a lot of different play styles, I'm going to leave that for the Shattered Empire podcast that we're going to do later on down the road. So I'm just going to speak specifically to this mission. To me, my centralized threats are uh, Belcroft is, in my opinion, the I like him better as a centralized threat than I like the Shard Knight. Um, though some people are going to disagree with me on the Shard Knight, I think the Shard Knight uh, is, is a great piece, don't get me wrong. But in a mother load specifically, because there is so much shards coming out, any things I can do to disrupt the shard economy, uh, I think puts me uh, in an advantage. And I think in this mission specifically, if I end up losing my miners uh, and I can't get them back or you lose your miners and you can't get them back, it puts a disparaging mark between our our shard, shard economies, uh, which once shard economy is disrupted, going into that killy turn three, first uh, top of turn round puts me in a distinct advantage at that that crucial point. So in early game with uh, with these guys, uh, my centralized threat is Adjudicator Belcroft. I do typically want him going after one of your heroes. So I may not put centralized threat forward at that at this specific moment uh so it will break with the general strategy of mine centralized threat uh instead uh i may put shard knight forward instead uh because typically i'm going to play with the or not shard knight but uh stk uh because typically i like playing with the stk i like him uh if you're using the patrol runner definitively the patrol runner can move fast uh she's great and you already want her up the board anyways uh, because you're going to try to get her onto the opposite side of the board. So always 
for me, uh, if your centralized threat is the Shard Knight or Bellcroft, you're going to wait with them. Uh, uh, if it's Shard Knight, you're going to put him forward. If it's Bellcroft, you're going to wait. And instead, you're going to run your Patrol Runner or your Stone Touch Knight forward uh, first, uh, kind of establishing a position on one of the flank, whichever side that you've chosen in between the center and the regular objective, positioning him in such a way that he can take either of those objectives to gain his quest uh, at the end of the round. Then for my followers, uh, I like to either mine with the wardens because of their integrity too. Uh, and I tend to favor the wardens, though I do think that the fusiliers have some potential play into this uh, as your miners in two. Uh, the only thing I really want to use the fusiliers to flat out uh, what I want to do with them is I want to hopefully have them to where they don't have to move forward. Uh, but unfortunately, I think with their base size, they don't have a choice but to move forward. Uh, they don't start. Uh, how many inches is their base again, Spencer? in inches uh, it's 1.2 they, they can 1. they 2. can uh, mine they can mine immediately i think this is uh no they the, no they can't specifically so if they're 1.2 that puts them 7.2 up the board uh that puts them over one inch away from uh the ribbon stone so they can't mine on first turn they'd have to move and then mine uh because that would only put them at 7.2 and the mines are um long up the board to the middle oh wait a second long up to the board on the yeah. middle. middle so it's yeah because yeah, yeah, you're using range, half the base yeah. so you're in range oh perfect so they can give up their first so they can give up their first um they can give up their first activation to gain their bonus where they go far far they can mine on their second activations and then they can try to shoot miners off of the uh, backboard edge uh, and if you want to you could use uh, shards to shoot the miners off to try to gain that shard advantage too i wouldn't recommend using the shards to shoot them off i would try to shoot with just their regular stuff uh and but that is only if you if you really feel that the their miners are defense low enough to where you can do it because fusiliers are only going to be three so you want that three on one or three on two uh if you're going to do that with the far far shot uh i do think that's worthwhile yeah. uh just to try to disrupt the shard economy yeah it's 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 more likely to disrupt their vigor economy because yeah uh your the sermon rivers and deposits do provide cover so like they're already at um you know advantage because of that, mm -hmm. and so then they take cover, but that costs them bigger. So they're probably yeah. going to survive the attack unless you're really lucky. But um, at the same time, it's it's disrupting the bigger economy, which may or may not be uh, be valuable to you. But it's definitely right. a good play to like have in your pocket. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Now, if you're if you're wanting to just if you're just wanting to rush shards for that advantage uh, and try to race your opponent then mine mine immediately, just mine mine. Uh -huh. And at that point, I think the Fusiliers are the better choice over the Wardens, even though they both have the two integrity. The problem with the Wardens is, is the Wardens want to be up the board doing damagey stuff. They don't want to be on the back of the board. So I actually think Wardens have less value in this mission, uh, specifically because they want to be forward on the objectives doing things. And then their two integrity just doesn't really mean as much uh, in my mind. Yeah, I think I think the play on 
on this particular scenario is one Fusilier, one Warden, one Line Trooper. Mm-hmm. Um, I would agree with that. Yeah. I would definitely yeah. agree and with I, that. Yeah, I also agree that I would run Bellcroft over Shard Knight, largely just because um, in this particular scenario, scoring the Shard Knights like Mark of Conquest isn't as easy because all of the objectives are far up in the middle of the board. Um, and so the shard needs to be up in the middle of the board. Absolutely. And that puts him in a uh, precarious position. Yeah. Uh, although it, it, it does also mean, I mean, he's also a really big beat stick. Um, mm-hmm. but one of the, the, so that's having in the middle board is necessarily a bad thing. So you can go kill stuff. But one of the things about this particular scenario that Shattered Empire really needs to be cognizant of versus a lot of other scenarios is that the Brutenstone deposits and the scenarios are far enough away from each other that you're not going to be able to be on an objective and uh, getting your bonus from the uh, Shattered Empire Coalition to your defense at yep. the same time. And this and is... An- so that's... Sorry. Uh, And this is another reason that I like the position first before moving to the objectives, because I can position where I'm getting my bonus for anybody that's like playing shooty orcs or or trying to shoot me. Uh, I can gain my coalition bonus and then move towards in round. I can actually move to the objective and then I can also kind of bully the objectives a little bit at that point, especially with Bellcroft in my turn two, Uh as I'm moving Bellcroft forward, uh, I can then at that point have a hero within nine. I can steal a ribbon stone from there. And then I can also kill a follower for, uh, for destroying another ribbon stone at that point. Once I kill their follower Mm -hmm. with a, with a ribbon blast. Yeah. Um, what about you? Reese? Any thoughts? Um, my only sort of real big one with uh, Shattered Empire and Motherload is if you can bait your opponent to one side of the board and then just throw a Stone Touch Knight onto the other side of the board where they don't have any heroes um, that'll get there anytime soon is is like a wickedly good play. Yeah. Because if they need yeah. to burn every activation known to man to get a hero over there to disrupt the Stone Touch... You can just go with him right at the end of the round, infuse him, flip him, and then that's five VP if they if they don't even contest the objective. Right. Well, and, and one of the things that I think is good with uh, Shattered Empire into this, we talked about war cows or where where cows or or distraction carnifex is. Bellcroft makes a really good distraction carnifex. You could mine six times with uh, your models, infuse Bellcroft to where his leadership is now far, move him up in between uh, one side's objectives, but just out of threat range, and suddenly his far range is possibly reaching their miners with his preach. And if you're going first, that just disrupts their shard economy right off the bat because now they're integrity ones uh, trying to get that mining off uh, instead of integrity twos. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we had that the other day uh, in a game I was playing um, where Belcroft just sat in the middle of the board, uh, infused, and that means that everybody, everything I was trying to uh, mine was now ingenuity one, which uh, is definitely a, a big a big change from when you you know you're guaranteed to uh, probably survive at least the first roll most of the time to mm-hmm. you know you're probably losing the follower before you get to mine a second time. 
Yeah. And I think that's really, really good with Bellcroft. And then his Riven Blast is medium long. So uh, even if he moves up, if he gets you with it that far range, he could potentially buy a Riven Blast. And uh, uh, well, if he's going first, you're not going to destroy a shard. So never mind on that. But, but needless to say, cutting that integrity immediately is really, really powerful. Uh, and he may even be able to reach out with far and power hungry. So this is an important note for any shatter, uh, shattered empire players. If you power hungry somebody and they don't have any shards in their pool, you still gain a shard uh, and you still gain the victory points because it is several actions. They lose a shard, you gain a shard, you gain victory points. It's not, we, we look at it and we call it stealing a shard, but it actually is three distinct things that happened. Yeah. It is a chain. Yep. So he could move forward and yeah, he could move forward and catch a hero within that far range. The unfortunate part is, is if you catch any hero within that far range, you may be in a dangerous position. <laughs> For sure. Uh, so. uh, cool. So I think that uh, about wraps up Shattered Empire. So, Reese, let's talk about the reason. The reason? Yep. Yeah, so um, the one of the things I love with Motherload is Quorum, and I'm going to focus basically on the starter box because it's, it's the easiest way to look at um, Motherload. You know, it's a starter scenario, starter box, here we go. Um, Quorum can sit in a way that you can get probably at least three followers um, to... So his Master Necromancer means that all of your undead followers autofocus rolls, uh, which means you're autofocusing harvesting rolls for Rivenstone deposits. So if you can, if you place him in a way where you can tag as many things as possible that are going to be interacting with Rivenstone, so like a, uh, a muster of archers is my most common one. You, you put him so he gets two of them on one side of the board in his aura, um, and it means you roll two dice focused to get a thing, and you just keep doing that. Getting the consistency of getting two actions and still having both followers on the board is is really really high at that point. Um, I need to measure it out. I don't think you can put him in a way where he can hit the other side of the board as well though, because it's only a medium aura for Master Necromancer. Um, but I might need to you know pull out the uh, the calipers to figure if that one works. Right. Um, but the yeah, so like but keeping Corum, you need to keep Corum back a bit because. While he is, you know, he's defense four with nine health, he's still very squishy. Um, and so keeping, and, and because he's a big crux of your list too, like he can put out, you know, uh, exhaustion tokens on your opponent's stuff and that's his secondary from Dark Studies. Um, and he can also, he gives that Master Necromancer aura so all of your followers are focused. You need to keep him safe. But he also needs to be relevant because he needs to be emitting that aura and actually helping you do things. Um, like Spencer mentioned before, most people are usually going for that center objective. If you pick one side of the board and have Quorum sit between the two objectives, um, so left and center or right and center, but far enough back that he's you know not in danger close, but he's close enough that if your followers end up part, like at the objective line, they're still in Master Necromancer, um, their their um, ability to you know help you maintain scenario relevance is massive. 
Um, and then if you've got a Knight of Exile order there, and this is what I was saying earlier about um, de- sort of deploying everything to one side for Risen for the most part, is like if your Knight of Exile order is there as well, he lets your undead charge for free without burning a vigor. Plus, he has his expert commander, which lets you burn a shard to remove all the exhaustion. So you can just keep recycling one area of the board, and you've got a massive scenario presence, and then you've got dudes behind you that can just keep harvesting shards. And and that's where the idea of putting a couple of followers on the opposite side of the board just to contest and be a nuisance um, is worth it. Uh, and with the barracks for um, Risen, the Death's Door, you can burn a shard. And if you've got one guy left on the opposite side of the board, burn a shard, another dude spawns right next to him. Um, so you can still maintain relevance on one side of the board without even having anything to do with it at all. Yeah. My my thoughts on this are very, very similar. Like, I think starter box is where you're going in this scenario, mm-hmm. because I think mm-hmm. quorum and this is something about centralized threats. Uh, so centralized threats don't have to be something that you're dealing with attacks. A centralized threat can be a threat without it actually attacking anything. Quorum is a centralized threat because his winds of remorse or his winds of um uh, of remorse can reach out long long uh so he does have a strong attack but also at the same time his dark studies putting exhaustion on anything that comes up the board that is really really useful especially at far range for him to be a threat he is a problem he messes with their activation economy because of that and he's scoring points every time he's doing this uh and then his master necromancer he supports those soldiers so well uh that he becomes a piece that has to be dealt with even though you're not like totally scared of him just running forward and killing you um I don't think you want Master Nightblade at all in this scenario, simply because his main quest is poison the well. And the only things you're really going to be poisoning it until he gets all the way across the board is your own wells. Like yeah. So I, I just don't see him as being a good piece in this scenario. Like in other scenarios, in, different. But in this one, I, I just don't see him, to be honest. Yeah, in, I would agree. In Motherload, I think the Master Nightblade's a little bit of dead weight because... Yeah. He, the, you only want him to get over the opponent's side of the board to poison their Rivenstone deposits to mm-hmm. score his secondary. The problem is that a lot of the time getting there and getting it uh, at a time where, because you, you need to have the um the Rivenstone deposits, you know, they can't be exhausted. And a lot of the time your opponent's just going to pick the one that the Nightblade's closest to, which yeah. means his secondary is now useless. And then a lot of the time you'll find that by the time it cycles back around, you probably have lost the Nightblade. He's very squishy. He's only defense three with six health. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, a couple of good follower hits can kill him. Um, and, you know, one hero can definitely kill him. Right. Um, and then you've got to recycle the same thing. You've got to spawn him, at which point your opponent looks to what he's closest to, exhausts that, and it just r- rinse cycles repeats. Um, so he, he is, uh, in my opinion, a little bit of dead weight in Motherload just due to that logic um whether we see that change down the track with different synergies is obviously a, a completely separate thing um mm-hmm. but as it stands at the moment it's um yeah it's a it's a it's an interesting uh, balancing act to get him to do much more than sort of you know kill a bunch of followers and maybe harass a hero right and i also see yeah. 
I see ensorcelled wolves being kind of not good in this scenario either. Um, yeah, they're. I, I think I think they they have a place, but the problem is you can only get them with the nightblade. So oh, you, so they're just not there. Yeah, yeah. So you can you because you can use them quite effectively to run over because they can easily with outrider and a move run with pounce uh, to allow them to run long. They can end up on your opponent's um, rivenstone deposits, basically like threatening their harvesters. But the only way to take the wolves is to take the Nightblade. And if you're taking the Nightblade, you're sort of, you know, pampering yourself not having another hero that can perform right. like a Knight of Exiled Order, right, is great. Because if you've got two musters of Risen Foot Soldiers in the middle of the board performing attacks off of free charges with him, then you score his secondary. But if you're running a Nightblade, Poison the Well doesn't go off until you can poison a uh, non-exhausted Rivenstone deposit with an enemy model within range of it, right. which is going to be your opponent's side of the board. Now, I'm wondering if yeah. there is, though I don't think it's optimal, but I'm just curious if there's possibly some sort of play. Ensorcelled Wolves in this scenario would be a backfield harasser where you're wanting them to outflank around and head for a Rivenstone deposit on the opponent's side to basically try to deny some of their ability to harvest stones. I'm wondering if you end up deciding to do that strategy, if you're going to basically take Nightblade and one Sorcelled Wolves, you're running Ensorcelled Wolves on the flank with the Nightblade running right behind them so that he's kind of using them as a screening unit to get him to where he can start uh, placing, uh, you know, uh, things i don't think it's the best but maybe in a three hero game that could be an alternative but i kind of see the carnal seer being my third hero in this in in a, a three hero game for this for this specific scenario yeah but like yeah with with the risen specifically um like i love the master nightblade and i love the wolves but in this scenario the nightblade is is very much a, 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 a yeah. poor pick he's just hard to do he's just yeah, hard yeah yeah, I mean he's he's fast enough where with medium long movement plus I, I'm pretty sure it's like a six inch range on his uh, his quest like he can get from like barracks to uh, either of the enemy risen stone deposits but like you're scoring one maybe two points if you uh, infused and and then he's just dying. Right, you're just giving up. A, you're just giving up a VP on, unfortunately. Mm. And yeah. I think, and so I like think, I in think. this scenario, your 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 miners are your is a unit of archers. You're using those to mine, and then the most work for your followers upfield is soldiers. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You're 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 knight. You're exile knight, and the the risen foot soldiers are going to be doing all the work. All right. the work on this scenario. Yep. Right. They they oh. carry they carry it all. Yep, that yeah, makes and sense. You, and then in and then depending on whether you run a carnal seer or quorum, it just depends on what your support piece is like. Is the carnal seer there spawning dudes back and exhausting people, or is quorum there giving everybody focus and exhausting people? Right, that makes yeah. sense. All right, cool. And then we've just got the uh, iron guard left, and I I feel like. You and I have probably played them the most, Spencer, but what are your thoughts on Iron Guard for Motherload? Um, I think they love it. <laughs> they absolutely love this scenario. Uh, you 100% take a Weldmonger on uh, 
Motherload. You mm-hmm. 100% do not take a drill master on Motherload. <laughs> um, so as far as like your your other uh, heroes, then it's whatever. Uh, Hobart and Dredge Boss are both really good. I played them both in the scenario. Um, and if you're taking a world longer, you've, you've got all of your uh, your follower options, even if you take a Dredge Boss. Mm. So uh, the, the play there is, is pretty simply um i i just want all the shards and so what i do is i position my weldmonger on uh he's going to be one of my flanking he's going to be my flanking veteran not like centered on with iron guard i actually might do like off center off center for both heroes which is mm-hmm. actually what i think i usually do instead of having a, a truly centralized threat but the weldmonger is definitely going to be off to a side with two heavy operators and then um first activation heavy operators mine they burn a vigor to double on their first mining action and then if i'm feeling really really fancy because you don't you typically don't use a ton of vigor round one is i might also have them take the extra interact action and burn through four vigor to make uh six interact actions uh with plus one shard on two of them so I did this in a game the other day, and I think, and and I happened to roll a double, and I had like twelve shards at the end of round, at the end of turn one. Yeah, it was stupid. Maybe it was ten. One, two, three, four, five, six. I think it was seven, ten. Yeah, I, yeah, mm-hmm. it was ten. Oh no, it was eleven. That's why I was confused. It was eleven because I had the world longer move up, and uh, also mine. There you go. Yeah. So, um. Yeah, so you have them activate. Worldmonger uh, moves up just to get a little bit closer to uh, some objective so he can either move mine or double move to get an even better uh scenario relevant position and then from there um depending on uh what you take which honestly i think dredge boss might be the better play here i think he is i think he's the better play hobart's quest yeah hobart's quest is really hard to score on mother yeah because it's hard to get him in a position to where he can kill something and harvest at the same time unless you get lucky and just roll mediums and longs all all game long yeah um so i think the dredge boss is probably the better play and from there it's 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 mostly the the rest of the you know the, the generalized stuff that we talked about earlier but the big thing with the iron guard is you want to be spending some time or some tempo in order to get your barracks up the board because if you take two barracks actions in the game you spend one barracks action just moving the barracks up and then you take another barracks action later in the game move it one more time then your barracks is now contesting the center objective and so you have a permanent model contesting the center objective there that your opponent cannot interact with and you're in a position to where you can dwarf swarm, which is a term that I coined and I love it because it's crazy. Um, it's where you, when you hit that lull phase or you take another barracks action, you're right in the middle of the board. Those dwarves are going to pop out two inches away from that plus their base size. Then they're going to run another three inches plus their base size away from that. So you can get to. You, you threaten the whole center objective scenario of the board from that barracks and your opponent like 
if they kill something, who cares? Like if they kill your world monger or your dredge boss, it's going to pop right back out and then go, go murder something. Like mm-hmm. you become so terrifying having that barracks right there in the middle and just being able to threat everything. Yeah. With your entire, with your entire model lineup. I am pretty, I am pretty certain. I am pretty certain that barracks will not be able to contest or control objectives. Like there will be some, probably some wording in the rule book to prevent no, them no, from contesting. The breach, head, oh. breach heads a model and does contest an objective. Are you kidding me? Yeah, that is, that is a, that is literally a strategy that they tell you to do in the iron guard starter overview. Are you kidding me? <laughs> that is it's ridiculous. Model. Well, the only thing the only thing that I would say against that, uh, though I like it, uh, I do like it using it as the centralized thing of just contesting the center. It wastes a lot of actions that you could be getting for you could be getting pretty far behind. In in my mind, yep. in this scenario specifically, on my very first turn, what I am going to do in deployment is I'm going to use I'm going to use a dredge boss and i'm going to use a well old monger i'm going to have a unit operator some tunnel fighters and probably a tunnel sweeper uh because i love the spray on the tunnel sweeper i think it's great for helping clear objectives the tunnel fires at ingenuity 2 can also be miners as well as fighters up the front board and your operators with a world monger in the back uh they are just definitively mining the heck out of everything while your mold world monger is controlling the side so my, my very first turn i'm going to deploy a tunnel fighter next to Hobart or a sweeper next to Hobart or not Hobart, but uh, the dredge boss. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to activate the dredge boss. I'm going to work order one of my other tunnel fighters near a ribbon stone so that he gets a free walk and then he mines immediately. And then at that point, I'm going to move him up the board uh, because that scores me a victory point. I'm going to choose another tunnel fighter, carry it up the board and immediately get up the board with him and another tunnel fighter or a sweeper. Uh, for my centralized threat. And then I'll turn to its Woldmonger operators and and go to town. Um, yeah. I, I, just do, I do the same thing, just in the opposite order. I do Woldmonger first and then Dreadmonger. You do the Wold and, the and then do it. Yeah. Yeah, I do the same, the same exact thing, same setup. One operator, one sweeper, one tunnel fighter. Yeah. Just moves up. Does, does the work order. Same, same exact thing, just in the opposite order. Yeah. I, I honestly think on this mission, that is like, that's the play like or in in one of those orders but i think those two guys together with one of each i think that is what they want to do we want to threaten the objectives to clear them as well as contest them on the far side as far away out of threat as possible uh but we're not really caring so much to ever push across the board to the other side uh we're just gonna mine and get victory points that's what we're gonna do (laughs) yeah they do it perfectly yeah. What do you think, Reese? And, and I, I, I agree. I think the I like um, the dredge boss in this scenario a lot, um, and the well the wellmonger and the heavy operators is just a given. I think in in motherload because you just sit them on one Rivenstone deposit and huzzah. Yeah. Um, I like the dredge boss a lot. I do appreciate Hobart, but the um, it, like Spencer was saying before, it's like getting him in a position where he can kill an enemy model and harvest is difficult. Um. And it gets harder still if he's like the only thing you might have to be able to get onto an objective too, because then you need to keep him centralized to a Rivenstone deposit, an objective, and enemy models to kill to get his quest. 
Whereas the dredge boss can just do his quest dragging followers around. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think unless you get super lucky and you're like sitting on a a Rivenstone deposit, you have enough shards for Hobart to burn, to drag a dude in, completely destroy them. And then you've got an act, your action left to harvest or you're sitting close enough and the Rivenstone deposits, you know, able to pop, then you're fine. But if you can't do that, you're running the risk of like I had it happen to me like he uh, I had Hobart sitting in the right spot, but he failed to kill a dude. Um, and right. so I then had him out of position because I put him in a position where he was able to contest an objective, catch a um, shard and um kill a dude but then he failed to kill the dude so i didn't score my secondary because of it so he takes a little bit of in in other missions where everything's you know set up differently i think hobart is a really good choice but in motherload it's difficult just to the way that it's all spaced out right and i think like I I, I i like spencer's weldmonger first because then when you go to do the dredge boss work order you can infuse dread boss which makes his threat uh, for his medium ray, you know, strength four, damage three, four, that is only taking one shard to do. He becomes a four defense. Uh, He's long for his work orders, so he can actually sit closer to the center and still give work orders to the people in the back, uh, scoring two extra victory points as they continue to mine and send shards to him and that he's using to just pepper box anything that comes around. Yeah, I, I think, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, Infused Dredge Boss is really, really scary. Yeah. Um, I am not looking yeah, forward. Like the, the, I'm the not world, looking the forward. Monger, the Worldmonger play is brilliant as a first thing, too, because it sets the, the precedent that you've just scored so fast, and it can do a real psychological trick on your opponent, where they're like, oh, I, I really need to push something to score points as well. Mm-hmm. Because especially it's like if you go with um, the heavy operators first um, and you mine all the shards, you can then, when you activate the Weldmonger, infuse him straight away. And because the dude's harvested in his zone, you, you'll score two points at the top of one. Yep. And then mm-hmm. and then that's like a it, it it's a real it's it's an interesting thing and it happens in all war games. When you do something like that, your opponent has to react. Mm-hmm. Whether they react in a way where they they do it over a turn or whether they activate immediate or um react immediately is the difference. And so yeah, the psychological plays you can do is um is really good fun with the Weldmonger because yeah, you're just one activate or one turn is a Weldmonger and two heavy operators, it gets you or can net you up to 10 shards. Um, right. 11 shards if the Weldmonger harvests you spend two to infuse and you score two points so you're right. still having eight to nine shards left for your next turn yeah because you totally yeah. with the with the operators you're going to mine twice right off the bat uh each one of them mining twice each one of them is spending vigor because you might as well just spend the vigor right off the bat and they're each gaining two shards that is a total of uh four shards per operator that's eight shards right off the bat there's no reason not to infuse the war longer go up two victory points then on the next turn dredge boss can uh, infuse for three so you've spent five out of your eight he work orders uh, a tunnel fighter which uh mines another shard so now you're going back up to four and you've already scored four points right off the bat and that's in the first two turns i've scored four victory points and i'm threatening all of these uh objectives it's it's really really good yeah that's yeah 
well, the so just slight just for clarity for for people listening, uh, math wise, the uh, operators can only use their double shard thing once per activation. Oh, okay. So, but but because of the weldmonger being there, being next to them, they can take an extra interact action. So the the math is equal. It's just the order of operations. It's right. Right. Yeah. Plus, you get charged from whatever you blow up, um, so that's going to help out as well. Um, but yeah, it's 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 super scary, and like you said, it puts so much pressure on your opponent to just look at there and like, especially if you go first as Iron Guard, to where turn one you've got ten shards and one victory point, and they're sitting at nothing. Yeah. And it's like, ooh, like like uh, like you feel so behind. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. And my, my, my last little point for this is you're going to have a ton of shards, like you're going to. So spin those shards on followers because you're not you're going to have more shards than you can spend on your heroes without killing them. So like doing a double move with some sweepers and then spinning a shard to spray and clear off a point is so good. Yep. So good. It's really, really good. Um, so yeah, don't be scared to spend your shards on followers, especially like in this particular scenario with Iron Guard. And definitively remember your coalition bonus. You spawn it out of the barracks. You're getting your free move. You know, keep going. Yeah, this is uh like the Iron Guard is is the one like the one and Shattered Empire are the coalitions that I never forget. Those are super easy to remember. Yeah, Oryx and Risen, forget them all the time. Oh mate, I think yeah. we went like three whole games with me forgetting the Risen Coalition bonus. So yeah. <laughs> oh, and another yeah, we, an, def- we definitely went three games. Uh, another <laughs> great, another great thing with Iron Guard in this mission specifically, two of those objectives that you're wanting to contest are close to board edges. So tunnel fighters using their signal rounds to spawn an Iron Guard follower in contact with a board edge uh, and that that follower, since he spawned, immediately gets a short walk and suddenly contests an objective. Uh, that's great. <laughs> I think that's awesome. Yeah. it's yeah. The, the, the Iron Guard for, for little stumpy leg dwarves, they are super, super fast. <laughs> it's amazing how fast they are. Well, yeah, I think that's pretty much Iron Guard in this mission. I think I think Iron Guard has a really good. I think this mission really loves the Iron Guard. Yeah, it does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So then that brings us to our allies of convenience. So, do either of y'all have any uh, spicy mixed <laughs> faction lists? I don't have anything spicy except for like whatever you're doing in this mission. I think in allies of convenience, dwarves need to be a part of it. <laughs> like I just, I, I, I really think a Waldmonger and a unit of operators in this mission for allies of convenience, making the Waldmonger your warlord so that you can get a dwarven barracks, and then that dwarven barracks because your Iron Guard is a warlord can still now move. I think that forms kind of your basis. And then at that point, because I want a nice centralized threat, I honestly uh, dig on either Belcroft or Tor 
uh, or quorum. Like I, I really think you could go in any of those three three ways for your centralized threat in allies of convenience. And I think they all have their own pluses and minuses. I think if you do weldmonger with operators and then you do uh, 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 shattered empires Bellcroft, you are just gaining so much extra on shard advantage. It's not even funny because uh, you're you're destroying the opponent's shards at the same time that you're just mining the heck out of shards. Like, I think that's amazing. Uh, I really, really I like the, that. Uh, the, the only wrench in your plan is that the Weldmonger cannot take operators. Oh, he can't? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Why? Why can't he take them? No! <laughs> oh, so that is definitive. See, I need to study my allies at convenience better. Oh, well, you heard it here, folks. Red, Red is wrong again. We're going to make this every episode. Red <laughs> needs to be wrong on every episode. <laughs> but still, I mean, even even if you do, I think, a, a dredge. Well, I mean, dang it. I, I mean, really want to of it's it's one I have I've only tested this once, um, and it was just a, a very brief demo game with a with a friend. But um I used Weldmonger Tunnel Fighters and then I used a Stone Touch Knight with double um uh line troopers, and I just camped one side of the board. That's a possibility too. Like that that could be and then you're only giving up one VP if they even get to a hero. Yep. If they kill either hero, it's one VP, and I can score five VP from an objective with the Stone Touch Knight, and I can sort score two VP every time um I harvest near my Weldmonger. So and you're you're giving up the I know the drill bonus from the heavy operators and getting the double shards, but you can right. still harvest 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 with the free interact action and you're only ingenuity two on a tunnel fire compared to ingenuity three on a operator but that's the only real difference in that strat is you'll you'll, you'll be net one shard less for each follow-up and you're one ingenuity less so there's a bit more of a risk to it um right. but it's a it's a very fun little mechanic that i've I, I play i think we got about two and a bit rounds and we didn't quite get to finish the game out but um, it was very fun just to sort of like sit on one side of the board, Stone Touch Knight on the edge of the objective, infused, Weldmonger sitting on one of my Rivenstone deposits infused, um, and I just had two tunnel fighters sitting next to him, another tunnel fighter on the other side of the board that I just put there whenever he died to catch the other um, Rivenstone deposit, uh, and then I just put line troopers blocking my opponent from getting to the... Um, the uh, objective and the Rivenstone deposit where everybody was. I do like throwing yeah, one tunnel fighter up the board. So that way, just in case you need, uh, he gets killed. You can signal rounds him back into the game uh, up the board for a contesting. I do like that. Uh, I just don't like the tunnel fighters being stuck back that far on a Rivenstone. That's the only thing I don't like about it. But then again, they got a pretty decent pistol, so maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've I've tried a couple different allies of convenience lists, and as long as you're as long as you're doing a list that makes sense, like I think you can make most anything work. Right. Um, just as long as you're not using, you know, models that are specifically disadvantaged on uh, a particular scenario or um, ones that just don't work. Like if you take Corum with no other undead models then that's mm. probably a problem yeah <laughs> but 
um, you know, just stuff like that. I do really really like the Dwarven barracks in Allies of Convenience. So I like, I always am thinking of which dwarf hero do I want to use, Uh, you know? Mm -hmm. So I do like that. Yeah, yeah. The, the dwarf barracks is is really good just because it's it's action benefits mm-hmm. both factions versus you know the other ones limiting you to to specific stuff. Yeah, um, like the Riven Aperture only doing Shattered Empire and the Oryx only doing Oryx. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah, uh, the only thing is is if you take that dwarven barracks, your warlord must be Iron Guard if you're wanting it to move. Otherwise, it will not move. So just be very careful of just picking the barracks and thinking that it'll move up the board and you can suddenly summon wolves or Carnotarixes way up the board because you will be sad (laughs) when you cannot. (laughs) Yes, and be aware that if you're taking Allies of Convenience and you're taking the Breachhead to actually take an Iron Guard hero to designate as your Warlord and not like, I'll just run an Oryx and a Stone Touch Knight and then I'll run the Breachhead because then you can't move it. Yep, because then you can't move it. (laughs) Yep. All right, so that's that coalition. We've got only one more left, right? My favorite uh, one. Yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, sure. Talk, talk to us about Wild Predators, Red. Okay, so I think Wild Predators is... Uh, so the only reason that we're going to talk Wild Predators, I know that it's a Wave 2 card, but it may become a Wave 1 card if our dreams and hopes are all made. And on top of that, we already know what the coalition is, so we can play the full faction already so that's the reason that i want to go ahead and talk about it because i'm already playing it and i really really enjoy this coalition in this mission specifically i want my terrestrial fiend i know he's 7 vp but when i make your your deposit erupt and kill some of your followers it makes me giddy I'm killing off your miners. I'm killing off uh, a lot of different stuff. He's a large centralized threat. I can now, like the Dwarven Barracks, I can spawn imps off of him on the middle. Uh, The other thing that I like about uh, Wild Predators into this specific mission is that you need, uh, in this mission, it will benefit having fast things because you can push further into your opponent. Uh, So my second model is going to be Tor uh, because I want to knock people down, get some of that focusing going on and stuff like that. And with Wild Predators, you're ending up with two centralized threats. Uh, I think the Imp, uh, with his ability to cause Train to explode, becomes really good at the scenario presence in this. And I think Tor's just threat range. your, your opponent is going to be really, really scared when he sees those. Uh, you're going to want uh, a unit of Carnotarixes uh, in here. And unfortunately, with the Carnotarixes in this list, I think they are going to be reliquated to your mining. Uh, though they are very fast and everything like that, if you can get one across the board, that's great. But other than that, uh, with Ingenuity 2, they are going to be digging up stones and flying them to your force. That's what they're going to be doing. Uh, they they are reliquated to the messengers and deliverers of said stones. And then I think your wolves, I think like we talked in Risen, I think the wolves are actually decent in here because they gang with Tor. 
uh, they gang with each other, you're going to probably field uh, a unit of them along with the unit of imps. And I think the wolves want to stick near Tor and whatever objective he's going for. And then the imps are going to probably bully the other objective, uh, possibly. Um, if Tor can push forward with those wolves towards an edge, which I think with him is a little bit better, and you can remove... Uh, using like a uh, terrestrial fiend to destroy some uh, heroes. Then the wolves move in and destroy a couple more or not heroes, but uh, followers. And then the wolves move in and clear a ribbon stone. And then Tor kind of comes in behind them and says, y'all come over here and touch my wolves. You all going to die. Um, I, I think you can easily uh, push towards having three stone deposit as yours and then your wolves are digging at one stone deposit your terexes are digging at the other stone deposits and your 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 fiend is basically saying if you come near these two objectives y'all gonna die um i really like wild predators into this into this mission specifically what do you all think <laughs> yeah yeah that, um, that, that, that's something i've played but that sounds fun to me yeah, I think I think it kind of depends on what the terrain on the board looks like as far as taking the the fiend. Just because like your your most consistent thing for his quest is Rubenstone deposits because people are going to want to be around them. Yeah. Uh, but the deposits are so far up the board from the fiend that getting him over there into a position to start scoring his quest <clears throat> is going to put him in a uh, relatively uh, precarious uh, position of potentially dying and what's being worth 7 VP, that's that's a lot. Um, so I don't I, I wouldn't immediately think to jump to the fiend uh, for this particular scenario. Other scenarios where the rooms deposits are much more centralized then uh, yes, absolutely. But because he has to like run across the board in order to start scoring his quest, Mm -hmm. i'm i'm not i'm not completely sold on the fiend well one um, of the things one of the things that i like about the fiend especially in this mission is that you're scoring so many shards that he can easily pop terrestrial imps as blockers to keep an opponent off of the fiend so he carries his own screening unit at that point for the most part depending of course on what dies obviously mm-hmm yeah, it's it's a situation. I I don't think it's it's bad, but I it it wouldn't be my my first thing of being. I when I see this scenario, I'm like, yes. Um, I think the uh, the tour dragoon list is pretty good too, because then you can take flingers to be your miners like they normally would, and then go double murderbird, and then. With Tor being so fast, Dracoon being so fast, and Murderbirds being lightning fast, you can be wherever you need to be on the board, um, which is pretty, pretty cool, uh, in in my opinion. Or if you want to throw some Brutes in there for some extra muscle, you can do that too. Um, to me, like, if you're... If you're if you're playing wild predators um, and you're doing like flingers and brutes and, and tour and the thing, I think it's just better to play works, to be honest. Um, yeah, I, I'd probably agree if, if you're bringing the brutes, if you're going double murder birds, maybe not on this scenario, like you're probably still better off just running oryx. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, so, I, th- yeah. I think if you're if you're not if you're not bringing the uh, fiend and you're not bringing in sorcelled wolves, then I don't think there's really a reason to play wild predators at that point. I think you're just oh, playing oh, orcs at that wolves. point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's what I forgot about was wolves. So it would be it'd be flingers for mining because their outrider plus the mining is like really really good. And then you bring wolves and murder birds, because then the wolves can gang with literally everything except for your flingers. Oh yeah, their only job most definitely. So yeah, yeah, I think that's the list. That's what I was forgetting was the wolves. Is yeah, so wolves, murder birds, then the double saber fangs, um, because that gives you a lot of a lot of threat uh, between Tor and the dragoon, because they're both super scary models and they're both fast. They can they can deal with whatever objectives you need them to go deal with. And then the birds and the wolves are also both really fast and they can run around and support that strategy wherever you need them to, need them to be. Um, yeah, I, so I, I think that's probably what I'd go for. Yeah, I kind of like that too. Uh, I'd probably do, just because I don't need flingers for mining, I'd probably do Carnotarics just in case I need something else. So like I would do double Carnotarics in a, in a Wolves rather than flingers, Carnotarics, and Wolves because Carnotarics yeah. has become Ingenuity 2 too. So like they can, they can mine as much. Uh, or I would do a second unit of Wolves because of the two health. Mm-hmm. The two health, the Wolves become really decent miners because even if you take a damage, they still mine again. Uh, but you're missing one model uh, is the only is the only problem versus the Carnotarics or the Flingers. In either case, yeah. uh, I would probably actually I'd probably do double Carnotarics just because. Uh, well, I like the Flingers. Uh, the one thing that I did when I played Wild Predators the first time, because you're stuck with the Oryx Barracks, uh, and I, even though I made that sound like oh I'm stuck with the Oryx Barracks, the Oryx Barracks is awesome. But in Wild Predators, you do have to watch that uh, the Oryx Barracks does not benefit as much as if you have a unit of Flingers. Uh, because then you can do the trick of killing off your Flingers and then Oryx Barracksing them forward and then trying to clear off some stuff in the backside. And then you have this force. Like that Dragoon, he moves so quick, it is not even funny. Um, but yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I could agree. I could see either way. I think I think all those are good options. The only reason I, I went flingers from jump was one, it's it's less extra stuff I have to buy. <laughs> and oh two, well, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and and two is I just really value the flingers ability to outrider into position and then just start mining. Yeah. But the wolves also have that option. Uh, you just have yep. one less model, but also you're pretty much guaranteed to be able to double mine because they have two health. Um, so if one of them dies, then, or if, if you roll a blank on your first one, then it's fine. They just take a damage and they can mine again. Yeah. I could see other way. What do you think? think, Um, yeah, I think they have a lot of options. Reese, since you played terrestrial fiend recently, Mm -hmm. what do you think? Um, I, I mean, I ran terrestrial fiend just with terrestrial imps just to try out what, you know, the, basically the wave one stuff without using wild predators. Um, I, I don't know. I kind of agree with Spencer in a way where the tour and a dragoon, as much as I have had zero luck with them both, um, it might be a little bit better, but the, 
I, I also don't see a problem running a fiend. I think if I was to try it out, I would probably go um, Dragoon or Tor, probably more realistically Tor, and then a fiend, and then probably two wolves and insert something else here, um, mm -hmm. whether it be imps because uh, their respawn mechanic um, from Rivenborn is really good. Um and can still, you know, give you a lot of sort of useful, weird, crazy tactics you can do. Um, and that gives you, I mean, the, the Fiend is really expensive, but the Fiend also does a lot of damage. But I agree with what Spencer said, where the big thing with the Fiend is um, the placement of terrain, because otherwise Wrath of Nature isn't going to do a lot for you. Because right. if you because you can get it to a um, long range uh, infuse, but it's four shards to infuse a fiend, um, and then to pop a rivenstone deposit on the other side of the board can be a bit you know that's basically a move run and hope that you're in range at that point. Um, whereas if there's terrain sort of around the middle of the board, then the the fiend is your best friend um, and the, the you know the worst nightmare for your opponent because it'll have that pressure from Wrath of Nature. Right. I, I, the reason that I like it, I think it's specifically this mission. Like, I don't think I would want the Fiend in Machinations or Ancient History or anywhere where Rivenstone deposits are centralized towards the center of the line. I think it's because the Rivenstone deposits are away from the objectives, and I know that my opponent's shard economy depends on leaving miners back there to mine uh especially like going into dwarves or going into uh well anybody that's got miners back on them uh, i think hitting that that side the fiend could have a good chance of clearing them and with uh you know far as 12 inches medium is six so you're looking at 18 inches uh, up the board is the center line uh he's deploying on medium which is six inches up his normal move uh, if he is infused, he he could be within that long range pretty easily of getting to one of those and exploding one of them. Um, so I don't know. I think it's something that I'm going to try out because I've just started playing Wild Predators and I'm still exploring it. Uh, his strength six crushing blow, like it's he's just got so much damage output and he carries a group of screeners with him. And then also just his ability to move through terrain and not be blocked by it. And I just really, I don't know, maybe I'm just a wild fanboy and, and I'm fanning out too much and it's just a wrong, <laughs> wrong thing to do. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I, think, I don't think that there is a wrong way to do it. I think it just comes down to playing it and seeing how it goes. Right. What's his base size again? Uh, 60 mil. 60. 60 mil so you're looking at 60 mil base and 60 mil is how many inches 2.3 uh, 2.3 yeah so he is 8.3 up the board on deployment he moves medium uh which would be another 8.3 so that's 16.6 that he's moved up and then the shard deposit at that point because it was only 18 inches away from the board edge we take off the medium. It was only 12. He moved 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 out of that 12 right off the bat. Uh, yeah, he's definitively in range of one of those shards uh, of the far shard deposit. 
uh, whether he's infused or not, he should be able to reach it with the six inches on a walk. Unless I, unless red is wrong a second time, which is, is very, very possible. I don't know. I, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to try it out this week. Uh, maybe I can get a game with somebody and uh, I'm just going to try it out. I'm going to try some, yeah. some fiending. Uh, I don't think I would like him as much into other scenarios, which we're going to talk about those later on, but still. That's it. They're coming right. soon. They're coming, coming yeah. in the next couple of episodes. Yeah, I, I feel the exact opposite way, so I'm excited to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Reese's, um, or, or Spencer's probably right. If it comes to feels, it, it's, it's Spencer's probably right. <laughs> like, listen to Spencer. Don't listen to Red. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Oh, um, so, so I think the last thing that we want to talk about was just how of index change things. So, yeah, and we only have we only have the one. Um, yeah. I think with the only event deck that we have, once again, like if you're going into a shooting strategy, there's a chance that uh, uh, you're going to have uh, problems at your longer, longer ranges trying to like if you're if your gameplay is based on shooting people off of the far riven stones like that fiend play or the the far far uh shattered empire play if squall comes up you're in trouble uh i think if uh you end up getting the the power swell which is one riven stone for free each turn uh if you're going into any type of shard denial strategy that could be a problem um so i think just knowing what could potentially come up round two and round three when we're going into that mid game where we have less of a thing you should just be cognizant of that and have a backup strategy yeah and obviously that's going to change completely when we see what tale of winter and tale of shadow and tale of beasts and tale of fire and tale of glass will do so (laughs) right and i think with tell i think with tale of beasts tale of party draw yeah (laughs) and i think tale of beasts the whole idea of centralized threat becomes problematic because you've got a beast running around the center of the board trying to kill everything. You when, know? when there's another centralized threat. <laughs> right, exactly. When there's the deck is a centralized threat. Uh, we, we, we throw this all out the wall, uh, all out the, the water. Uh, but still. Yeah. And then even more, once we start getting the event decks that have different round timers than everything. Yeah. I can't wait. I can't wait for that episode. I can't wait for that episode. Yeah. That's one of the reasons oh. that I that's one of the reasons that I'm trying to break it down into early round end round because we don't know when that turn starts. You know, so you just have to yep. be kind of cognizant to to kind of break it down because it depends on the event deck. It depends on the on the the way the shard dice is rolling, you know. So yeah, I think it's yep. easier to concept as early round, end round, and have rough rough ideas of where those will start. I agree. Yep. That's, uh, that's been awesome. That's been over two hours. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. Well, let's, um, let's wrap it up then uh, for everybody. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Barracks Action. Action. Oh, wow. And yeah, definitely uh, hit us up on the Barracks Action Discord. Come hang out. Talk strat. Uh, talk about your favorite models. Talk about uh, whatever you want to talk about, as long as it's Rivenstone related. And um, yeah, get in some uh, TTS games so you can see what all this nonsense that we're talking about actually means. 
that's all I got. I've been Spencer. I've been Red. And I've been Race. Later, y'all. Later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
The music entitled District 4 provided by Kevin McLeod of Incomputech.com. Licensed under the Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. You can find out more about the Creative Commons license at creativecommons.org backslash licenses backslash by backslash 4.0.